Hello and welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. And joining me here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the president of Mission USA. There's a stranger in the studio. Okay. Also joining us, Jed Brewer, the director of Mission USA Productions. Is it me? No, not you. Oh, okay. Well, you're you're usually here. So. I am? Yeah, yeah. Lots of surprise. Physically, anyway. <laughs> not emotionally or mentally. <laughs> Joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. I feel like Glenn's having an existential crisis right now, and there's no stranger in this studio. Well, that's true. So we just going to get right into the wisdom? Or? Yeah. I like to, you know what I like to do? Get into the wisdom. <laughs> that's what you're just known like, for. It's like a tractor beam. You know, that's uh, how I'm. Well, let's, let's do it. Let's get Is it, it like a tractor beam? It's just like a tractor beam. The that's wisdom the ref- just draws him in. A reference from the cool one. Sure. <laughs> I appreciate that. They're always trying to bring me down. Yeah, you rolled 3D20 and figured out, looked, consulted your chart, which reference to you. See, I don't know what you're talking about. Sure. The reason being, oh, I'm I, cool. I think you do, Trebek. <laughs> I think you do indeed. Here's what I'm saying is there are strangers in this studio. I was hoping we would blow past that without any of the rest of us acknowledging it. People just think you were crazy. <laughs> Pete, we, our, our, our lovely, lovely friend... Adam Whedon. Please, we got to protect the anonymity. Oh, right. Pseudonym. Right. Schmadam Schmeden. Schmadam Schmeden. Let's just call him Adam W. That's a little, that's a little obvious. A Whedon. A Whedon. A Whedon. He hopes one day to be the Whedon. But, uh... (laughs) He, he's in Chicago helping us out all the way from Florida. Yeah, that's how they say it. And he, and so he said... This really stretches your definition of stranger, by the way. He, he said, well, he said, my greatest dream is to one day watch this podcast be recorded live. I don't think Adam said that. Nope. And we're like, you know what? Aim higher. You're about to have the thrill ride of, your, rock your, world. of your life. It's on, schmadam. And <laughs> you know what it is for him right now? Usually he hears it. You're right. Okay. But now it's like... The same thing that yeah. he hears in his ears, only now he can smell it, too. Right. Wow. Just skipped all the other senses. Went to that one. <laughs> we also have a space-time continuum thing going on, because normally when Schmadam hears it, it's been beamed into the future. That's well, true. that's true. And this is what... Th- thank you for bringing that up, Lee. Because yeah, here... thanks, Lee. Here's what's going to happen is we don't... <laughs> you're not hearing this when we record it. Now, that's nope. just silly. Schmadam is. Well, that's the thing is... He thinks he is. No, he actually is, dude. That's but later, he's going to hit up the podcast machine right. at his house, and he and he's going to tell it, podcast me, and it's going to it's going to happen. He's going to hear it, and he's going to say, "I must not have been there because I'm hearing it now." Glenn, Whoa, I think there may be a true. fatal a fatal flaw with that assertion because right. one. Well, there's many, but one key fatal flaw is I think there's every chance Adam will be so offended and underwhelmed by the experience of being here in person, oh. he never listens to the podcast again. I know that's, that's... why I don't listen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but never mind all that, I have an emergency. Really? <laughs> I thought we were going to get straight into the wisdom, bro. Oh, that's... We didn't even get straight into the emergency. <laughs> <laughs> well, that... 
All right, pay, pay attention. People. Sometimes I feel like I'm the only one in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay, now here's here's what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, we got we we're dealing with an ongoing crisis here. Really? Yeah. Like a financial crisis, a uh, political crisis. It's this is a love crisis. Okay. Okay. Now I'm married. Like tennis love? Yeah, that's what I'm picking up on. Jess married. Yep. Sounds like it. Lee's married. Yep. Period. Here, I'm going to tell you a secret. Tell me. Schmadam married. Schmadam is married. Okay. But here's what you don't know. My man, Matt, not married. Come on. That now. is true. This has been... If you, you don't know that, you really don't pay attention when you hit play on this podcast. Here's what I'm saying. Okay. People know that, you know, he's not married. Okay. Fair enough. But it's reached a crisis level proportions. Okay. What's happened? Well, it hasn't. He's still single. Okay, so just time has elapsed. This can't be allowed to go on. Right. Okay. So now, given it's like the opposite of tragedy plus time equals comedy, thing plus time equals crisis. Uh, you know what? Uh, there's a lot of math talking there, <laughs> and that's how I know you're trying to dodge it. Yeah, okay. math. Sure. Here's what I'm saying: is we got to get creative. Sure. You know what I mean? You're and saying we got to solve this problem once and for all. Okay. And the way to do that is reality TV show. Okay. 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 Now, okay, we got the reality TV show this problem. And well, this is America, and that is how we solve problems. Right. Now, Matt is a bachelor. Right. So that's what we call it, a bachelor. Ooh, that's oh, good. Yes. I like that. Here's what, here's what we're going to I think the gonna, American Broadcasting Company is going to sue somebody, but okay. Here's when I, I got a brand new idea. Hit me. Lots of young ladies. Okay. Single. Okay. They're all scrapping and fighting to see who gets Matt. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. That's as it should be. You know that's I mean? kind of how I see the world in general, but. I, it, <laughs> now, I'm just going to say this, and if it sounds wrong, you tell me. It it sounds wrong. Can we put him like on a like a tower or okay. a high scaffolding? Okay, and they just got to fight to get up there. I like it. And whoever you're, gets to the top, you're saying like a combat Rapunzel with reverse gender roles. Yes. Okay. okay. It could be like the Hunger I think, Games. I think you just pitched a Tumblr. <laughs> it's like it's it's like the Hunger Games, but right? In the cornucopia is just Matt. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. May the Matt be ever in your favor. I, I don't know what any of these words mean. But. Madness Everdeen. Yeah, Madness Everdeen. <laughs> wow. That's well played. And he gets sued by, like, congratulations, Photoshoppers in the audience. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> time, he, for Glenn, time for Glenn to get a little revenge on the Photoshop. you yeah. send us Madness Everdeen Photoshops, I'm talking all kinds of goodies coming Please, your way. Yes. I'd like to it's take another opportunity to remind the audience that Jed does not keep the merch, has no access to the merch, nor That's authority true. to give the merch away. <laughs> yeah, but he does get to tell the dude that has the merch what to do. Well, it's really neither here nor there. But here's what I'm saying is... Uh, the ladies love Matt. Here's, here's what so, I'm saying in this, is Jed is being so horrifying this episode, I'm trying to steer it back to letting Glenn talk. Yeah. That's how bad <laughs> that's, it's gotten. That's yeah. really bad. Yeah. Jed. Yeah. I would feel guilty, but I don't. Right. <laughs> yeah, you had that part of your brain removed. Yeah, exactly right. Here's what I'm talking about is, the ladies love Matt. They do. That's not a Demonstrably wrong. untrue. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, what's happening is Matt is being stingy. 
Yeah, he's, I agree. He's not, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's not being... Uh, he's got so much love to give. Right. He feels racist but towards he's Scottish all people, it. but He's keeping it all inside. Exactly right. What we need to do is find the right kind of woman that would just pry open his shell. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And get in at the soft uh, inner parts. Yes, the gooey center. And, and you know, then love. Yes. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. You're saying that Matt... That was very eloquent, Glenn. Yeah. Matt's like a Cadbury egg of love. <laughs> I was going to say oyster, but also Cadbury egg. Yeah. You know, An oyster is more likely to give you food poisoning if um, pre- uh, prepared improperly, so I think yours is right. Yeah. Okay. But I, you know, because sometimes there's a pearl in there. Sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So you see where I... Only the time find out. See how Can I brought they, it around? Okay, here's, here's Only my given question. Time. Is on the, on the show, The Matchler... Right. Like in, instead of, you know. Oh, right. Like, Remember when we said that five minutes ago? On the show, The Matchler, instead right. of like people going on dates with Matt, learning about Matt, and, you know, that, and then he awards roses. Nobody can wants they just that. have like different kinds of, you know, different kinds of fighting and obstacle courses right. and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing is fight your way to Matt. Totally. Absolutely. You're envisioning right. kind of a Bachelor style show, but really more American Ninja Warrior. Yes. Right. That's correct. Definitely. That's right. it. Right, you know, they got to swing over a pit of, of, you know, vipers and snakes and things like that. And I think we're going to have a hard time clearing that with legal. It's but like okay. fire, and yeah. you have to run through fire. Because it, 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 we understand, this is the key part of this. Tell me. We do not want a woman to win the Smatchler. Right. I thought I was the only one, but I'm glad you're on We board. do not want a woman to win this. That's not for real. Right. Okay, you know what what I mean? She's got to be hardcore. Oh, do totally. you guys not remember true. the TV show in the 90s where there was the tennis ball gun and they had to go, uh, you know, the the, gladia- the American Gladiator show? Of course yeah, I remember yeah, American yeah. Gladiators, dude. Here's what I'm talking about. To the, Wikipedia, people born after 1992. They, they, <laughs> it, it's the thing with the, it has a two ends on it. And you're wow, good description. Thank you. Audio. That's it. You can, you audio can. medium. I'm doing the motion. Audio medium. <laughs> well, they can they can hear my hands moving back it's and forth. Super so can't. And even if they could, that's not descriptive enough. But what I'm saying is, it's like a stick that had two cushions on either yeah, end. Yeah, they call those oh, pugil sticks. They whacked each other with the stick. Okay, they, so yeah. can can standing Jed, on a platform? Sure. Jed, yeah. is there any kind of spiritual element to the competition? Like. Do they have to? Do, is there any kind of like like any kind of legalistic element to this thing? Well, certainly you have to recite Bible verses as you're doing this in the King James, <laughs> right. which is the Bible Jesus read. Uh-huh. And I'm going to give an accuracy rating. I think 95. percent You right. got it. Your your recitation yes. has to be 95 percent accurate as you're doing these feats of strength to prove your worthiness. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. No, I think that's good. I, I yeah, and then you run through fire. Right. And then then you marry Matt. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the end of the Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail when they're going through all the tricks and traps to get to the Holy Grail, except the Holy Grail is Matt. Exactly right. Because here's the thing. First of all, clearly... Also old and doesn't look as impressive as you think. In Latin, Matt begins with an I. Nice. Yeah. Here's what I'm saying is... (laughs) Enjoy that joke, three people. We are... First of all, yes, we are clearly desperate. I mean, we're we're at a point of desperation. No question about it. But that doesn't not me mean as much as you two jokers. That doesn't mean that we're settling. No, not at so all. I'm saying no. this has got to be a spectacular woman. If anything, we're ramping up the stakes. <laughs> this is what I'm saying: is it's onward and upward. Fight your way to Matt. 
Matchler. Yeah. And then there's like now a, you're just spitting out words. And there's no this, we're not doing roses. Yeah. Madness Everdeen. Madness Everdeen. Uh only one potential bride and then they get married right there. There, there can be only one. Because there's no Gibbsy's backseat. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I think your idea, though, with the fighting sticks is right on. Right. Because in real life, for real real, my wife actually knows how to use a bow staff. Right. Like, she's trained on it. Uh-huh. And she's great. Right. Sure. Therefore, other women who know how to fight with a stick would also be good. It's a one-to-one that's correlation. Just, that's you know the what? transitive property. That's, that's what, what I'm talking about. That's math. Yeah. You can't argue with math. Math has never been my friend. I, <laughs> I think we just figured out how to get you know the right kind of woman for math. That's right. Is if she can beat up other women with a stick better than than anyone else, then she's ready to rock and roll. Then I think, and you know what? That's the kind of woman that we want for Matt. Absolutely right. Is, is that that? Because you know what? Let's face it. There's a better than even chance that Matt would get out of line. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the first true thing we said all episodes. Here's what we here's what we need: woman can get him back in line this, with with a stick. The you know. What does the Bible say? A little Folly, peek into the, the other marriages on this show. You just got a little glimpse into there. Folly <laughs> is bound up in the heart of single Matt. Right. But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. This is That's the Bible, That's y'all. the Bible, y'all. Okay. Is it? The Bible. Is You've it? been Bibled. Mostly. <laughs> that's Bible-ish. <laughs> <laughs> that is Bible-adjacent, people. All right. On that basis, I think we've solved our problem, and I declare emergency off. All right, well, um, that was horrifying. Yeah. Um, so we got bridge box. It's really no connective tissue between the uh, unhinged rant you just went on and that. Uh, Matt, do you feel like that was a quality segue that you just uh, no. took us through? Right there? I feel like um, that wasn't my best work. Right. You know what is my best work? The Bible study that's in every month's bridge box. <laughs> nice. Well, um, do you feel like if you had a woman in your life, you'd be able to segue these a whole, whole lot better? Nope. Because that's kind of how I feel I feel, feel like about uh, it. as horrifying, as uh, disappointing as it is, I'm operating at about maximum segue capacity. Okay. So we got Bridgebox, missionusa.com slash Bridgebox, $8 a month. Support the ministry we do here. Hire, help us hire part-time staff people, work at the jailhouse, on the streets. Uh, starting in the month of July, you're guaranteed a brand new exclusive Lee Younger track in every Bridge box, along with stuff from Glenn, myself, Jed, various other friends we got coming in. MissionUSA.com slash Bridgebox. All right, we're going to jump into our first question here. If you have a question for us, you can hang out with us all the way till the end. I'll give you some addresses where you can get in touch with us. First question comes in anonymously to our Tumblr inbox, and it says, Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, then why don't we pray exactly like that? The Lord's Prayers we know today added a couple of lines at the end, and even so, no one I know actually prays those exact words. We pray for healing, for meals, for God's will, for the good and for the bad, but it's all our own words. I don't know a single person that prays the exact words for every single one of their prayers, even though Jesus said, this is the way you should pray. Why is this, and should we be praying like that? And Lee, why don't you start us off? Absolutely. Um, it's a really cool question, and um, you know, sometimes when you're looking at things in the Scriptures that seem like they're confusing, one of the things that helps is to to stand that scripture up uh, beside other scriptures to figure out what is it not saying. Um, a, a lot of times when you, when you bring in other scriptures and you look at them contextually and stuff like that, you can kind of get a better idea of what we're looking at by kind of eliminating some things that are not happening. So for instance, 
All throughout the New Testament, there are tons of prayers listed. Prayers by Peter, prayers by the Apostle Paul, prayers by Jesus himself, and these prayers all have different words. So one of the things that one of the things that we know by that is that it's totally okay to pray using different words. I mean, and that that seems like kind of an obvious thing, but it's a it's a good way to kind of to kind of get some left and right limits on this. Do you have to pray these exact words? Well, no, because there's plenty of other prayers throughout the New Testament that aren't the same words. One thing that's really cool and if you've never done this, it's a super easy thing to do is if you go to a website called Bible Hub um, or Biblos.com will direct you to the same thing. You can find out, you can look at, you know, Matthew, you know, Matthew 6 and verse 9, and you can see this exact, you can see this exact Greek word. If you click a little button that says interlinear, it'll show you all the Greek words in the book with a corresponding number on top of it. And that is a reference to a, a book called the Strong's Concordance. If you click on that little number, then it'll show you every single time that word is used in the New Testament and all the different ways they translated it. So for instance, when Jesus said, this then is how you should pray, and then he gives the Lord's Prayer, that little phrase, this then, it's one word in the Greek language. And if you chase that down, that word means all, you know, it's translated a bunch of different times in the New Testament. One of the for instances is in Matthew seventeen twelve. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he said, and it, using kind of the term Elijah to talk about John the Baptist, he said, Elijah does come first. They've done everything. The, the leaders did everything they wanted to to him, and in, and in the same way, the Son of Man will also suffer at their hands. That's in Matthew 17, 12. And that little phrase, in the same way the Son of Man will suffer at their hands as John the Baptist, that's the same word. This then is how you should pray. Now, Jesus did not suffer exactly the same way John the Baptist did. John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus was crucified. But the heartbeat of the thing was that the leaders didn't like what he was talking about, they got rid of him in the same way. So when you look at that back at the Lord's Prayer, what is he really saying? Maybe what Jesus is saying is, when you pray... These various things ought to be in the heartbeat, heartbeat of the way that you talk to God, that you are asking God for forgiveness every day, that you're asking God to provide for you, that you're asking God to keep you out of trouble, that you're, asking, that you're telling God that you love Him and giving Him praise and stuff like that, that the heartbeat of your prayers contains this kind of stuff, not that you have to pray these exact words every time you go to the Lord. That's absolutely right. You would pick up on that, Glenn. Yeah, the Sunday school answer is, uh, if you go through the elements of the Lord's Prayer, if you look at uh, the Our, Our Father uh, implies a relationship, a, a, a family, close personal relationship. How be thy name implies an adoration. Thy kingdom come, uh, you know, it's talking about faith. Uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a submission to the Lord and, and so forth. Give us this day our daily bread involves petition and asking the Lord for things. Uh, forgive us our trespasses is uh, uh, confession. Uh, as we forgive those who trespass against us is forgiving other people, obviously. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's seeking strength, spiritual strength from the Lord. And, uh, you know, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. That's uh, a worshipful element to that. So you could break all those down into those component parts. That's sort of the Sunday school answer of what's in there in the Lord's Prayer. But the thing for us to look at is those are elements of the walk, 
those are elements of uh, what our relationship with the Lord needs to entail. Um, but uh, that's, I think it would be wrong to say we need to follow that format. It's that we need to include these important qualities. Yeah, that's a very different thing because I get right. the feeling from this question, it's more of a format <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and here's the thing about sort of that format uh, element is the first thing that goes out the window is authenticity and okay. and uh, genuine. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't know about you guys, but I think for me, I think anything that is authentic needs to also be flexible sure in a certain way if you see what i mean to where it has to feel like i i i you know today i'm not feeling it if i if i do it the same way today as i did yesterday yeah that would imply i feel the same way but it's different today i'm on something different i need to be able to pray this different i need to be able to talk about it different i need to have a different tone of voice or whatever totally. it is i need that flexibility in order to be authentic if i'm forcing myself into some sort of a ritual then the intimacy goes out the window and here's the thing the intimacy is the whole point of of, yeah. of the praying Amen. I think it's absolutely right. I think there's another issue going on here that um, corresponds to that, which is just how we see the value of things like church tradition and these kind of rituals we're talking about. Jed, can you pick up on that for us? Sure, I sure can. I think one of the things that's so important to remind ourselves of is we are not the first person to read the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Now, let me say that again, because it, it's actually easy to miss that. In America, we have this hyper-individualistic culture, and we really cultivate that in churches. We talk about a personal relationship with God, which is right on. It mm. is a personal relationship. But we have a way of viewing ourselves as we're the only persons ever read this Bible before. And so kind of however it strikes us, that must just be what it means. Well, that's not in any way true. Um, <laughs> you know, these, yeah. these words are thousands of years old, and so through the ages— there are people that have been very godly people that have studied them and written down, here's what I think this is saying. That's what a commentary is. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Bible commentary, you might have heard people talk about before, is, you know, a, a very, you know, a person that's really studied the word and, you know, really loves to write down, you know, kind of verse verse, here's what I think this is saying. Well, those are really valuable. And actually, the same website that Lee mentioned, Bible Hub, if you look up a verse and you just scroll down, it'll show you a half dozen commentaries. Right, um, that's right. You know, on that verse. And if you scroll down uh, on this verse, what all of them will say is, Exactly what we're saying on this podcast. This is meant as a guide. This is meant as an example of the kind of of prayer. It's actually in contrast to what Jesus had just been talking about, which is ways not to pray, you know, the Mm -hmm. ways that kind of people in other religions at that time prayed. Right, right, right. Um, Which was repetitive and... uh, Formalistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly right. Mantra, exactly right, exactly right. But I I think the the thing is... um, um, it would be wrong to look at um, church tradition and say, you know, this is the way we've always read this passage of scripture. Therefore, I will unquestioningly go that way. That mm. that wouldn't be good. And um, you know, history nerds may know that was part of what the Reformation was concerned about. Mm. However, I'm saying there are people who've come before me. Um, and they have a perspective, and I want to at least give some weight and some credence to that perspective, and if they generally all say, this is not meant as a mantra for you to repeat. This is meant as an example of the kind of prayer life that you want to have. We want to go that route. Jesus said intentionally some very shocking things. There's moments where Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. Right. Well, it would be easy, particularly as a young person, to read that and say, well, I guess I just need to maim myself to prove how right. righteous I am. Right, right. Um, if you go back 2,000 years and read commentaries, you'll see all of them saying that's not what he meant. Right. Uh, this yeah. is hyperbole. This is intentional overstatement to prove a point. Mm-hmm. No one thinks you should maim yourself. There's strength in being able to rely on tradition, being able to rely on history. Even the people in your own life, going to your pastor, going to your youth pastor, the people that have been walking with the Lord a little bit longer than you have saying, I think I know what this verse means, but why don't you tell me? What's your perspective on it? That doesn't mean you should unquestioningly take everything they say and, and go with it, but you should give it some some value and some weight. And, and just real quick on that, I think part of what you're, uh, you're leading us towards is the idea of how do I do this verse to the max? That's exactly what I'm talking about. To the that's extreme. Ex- that's exactly what I'm if talking I about. If I follow it to the nth degree, does that mean I've maximum Bibled it? Yeah. And what you're really talking about is a big, deep challenge to say there's a ton of depth yep. underneath this. And if you're going to max it out, you got to see it from all those different angles and really dive into, as Lee was talking about, dive into the language of this thing and get down in there and, um, and lots of hidden nuances and pull all that up. And that's how you really max this stuff out. It's it's not by saying, give me a physical Ritual and I'll do it harder than uh, anybody else. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. Well, I think and right on with that is these this idea of um, not only not only looking at the Bible in a historical perspective, but looking at it a holistic perspective, which is a constant challenge you'll you'll encounter throughout your walk. But it's easy if you just kind of started reading the Gospels in Matthew one. You got to Matthew six and it says this then is how you should pray. You know, well clearly that means that's the only way I can pray. Well, if you keep reading the Gospels, you'll hear Jesus praying in a bunch of different ways for different right. groups yeah. of people in different circumstances. So you have to be willing. A big part of the growing in your Christian life is being willing to admit that you're wrong about really just about everything. Right. Kind of as you continue to find things and hone things. And as Jed's saying, not necessarily follow what a pattern somebody else has laid out for you dogmatically, but not even following a pattern for yourself. You've laid out with dogmatic. Yeah. No doubt about then it. The man. number one way to stagnate in your walk is to, I do it this way today because I did it this way yesterday. And that's, um, it's, there are people stuck in uh, prayer ruts on that. There are people stuck in devotional ruts on that. There are people stuck in churches yep, absolutely. on that that are all kind of um, really having a negative impact on their walk. And there are people who do just pray the Lord's Prayer as part of their prayer life. Sure. It serves a purpose. A lot of times, like Glenn was saying, if you're new to the whole Jesus thing and you don't really understand how to pray and what, the point of prayer is supposed to be you can start with the the Lord's prayer as is, then you can kind of plug and play with, you know, what we're thankful for and what we're requesting for and all that stuff. And you can it be something becoming your own is a process, but you have to be engaged in that process as opposed to like these guys are saying, looking at just how to do the right thing, the hardest, because yeah. outside of even right and wrong, the right thing for you can develop and change over time. And it almost certainly will. One quick closing thought on that. Prayer is you talking to your dad. Yeah. Um, in a healthy relationship with with a father, um, there's no such thing as you can't talk that way. Right. You you can't you can't talk about that. We can't you know have that discussion. So anybody that's suggesting you you can't pray about this, you can't pray this way, you can't pray with these words, you can't pray in this fashion. You yeah. need to be very very careful about that. Absolutely right. Yeah. That's so, so right. All right, we got another interview for you guys lined up this Ooh. week. Very excited about this one. This is our friend who's a professor of sociology at Wheaton College here right outside of Chicago. His name's Noah Tolley. He's written a book called The Cities of Tomorrow and the City to Come, A Theology of Urban Life. 
which is a big fancy title. It's part of uh, actually Wheaton's Ordinary Theology series. You're kind of looking at kind of big topics like cities, sex, that kind of stuff. I'm looking at that from a theological perspective. There's a mention of a little humble program called The Bridge Mm, in here, and maybe how it has certain qualities that might be considered, what's the word I'm looking for? Genius. Oh, that's a pretty nice word. That word did come up. Did come up in a book published by the Zondervan Press. Well then, one. Yeah. So if you're wondering, is that did that lead to a month and an ongoing site of Glenn giving someone a compliment, and then saying, "I mean, it's it's no Zondervan genius, right, but it's pretty right. good." Yes, yeah. yes, it did. Yes, yeah. we're all enjoying that mightily. So I got to sit down with uh, Dr. Tully and talk about the book and some of his experience in being an academic and what that means with the face. So we take you to that right now. Uh, Dr. Tully, thanks so much for joining us. And I guess I would love to start by getting you to talk about your book is uh, Cities of Tomorrow and the City to Come, and it's part of uh, the Ordinary Theology series. So I'd love to get you to talk about just that that overlap between our ordinary life, which in your case is studying urbanization, and the theology of your faith. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, first of all, I should give credit to uh, Gene Green, my colleague here in New Testament at Wheaton, and Zondervan for that title for the series. Uh, they did a very good job coming up with it after uh, Gene drafted a short book on surgery, theology of surgery. Mm-hmm. He had had open-heart surgery, and uh, in recovering from it, he was looking for books to read about surgery from the theological perspective, and he actually found very few. Of course, lots of things that would be helpful tangentially or could make the connections for him, uh, but none that were really on the topic. And so he, uh, being a scholarly sort and also laid up in bed, I think, uh, took a penning a book himself that fit that title and pitched it to Zondervan, and Zondervan said, yeah, we actually, we love this approach. We would love to have a whole series here mm-hmm. called Ordinary Theology. Um that would actually deal with the ways that theology intersects with our ordinary lives, our everyday lives. So we'd like uh, we'd like Eugene to recruit some people to do uh, volumes and other topics, things that are important to the ways that we live day to day. And uh, Gene recruited three more books for the first set in the series. One was on sex, and one was on. Um, cities, and that was mine. The other one was on politics. And cities was an important topic because, you know, more than half the world's population lives in cities now for the first time in history. That means that for more than half the world's population, and even those who live outside of cities, as I say in the book, the shadow of cities, how they think about, interact with cities on a daily basis is something that's ordinary for them. It's not extraordinary. It's not the person who's uh, just traveling to the city once or twice in their lifetimes or may do it as some some memorable excursion, but it's an ordinary thing. And we need to be able to think carefully about how it is that uh, God's Word and the Christian tradition can help inform how we do that. 
Absolutely. One of the things that um, you talk about a little bit in the book, but even more kind of in your work at uh, Wheaton College is, and I think it's kind of a, a motto at Wheaton, I know which I like a lot, is the intersection of faith and learning. And that, that comes to a, a very real intersection early in the book when a, when a colleague actually straight up asks you, why does someone who studies urbanization want to also go to study theology and have, have you found what have you found in your work between those two things where one kind of enriches the other yeah that's that's a great question too i think the reason this is important to me is because i i want to ground everything that i do as a scholar uh in what i understand who i understand god to be uh, who I think God has told us we are and, and uh, what he's told us about our creation. I want that to inform what, what I do when it comes to the selection of research projects, uh, how I practice my research, even though uh, much of my research is practiced like any other public policy researcher or any other political scientist. Um, I want to think about that as a Christian, and more importantly, even I want to think about the implications of it as a Christian. And uh, that story, that story about being asked by a, a famous scholar why I was doing it is really an important one to me. Um, she invited me to lunch. She had just written me a letter of recommendation uh, to go study for a year during my sabbatical at uh, a divinity school. And she was admittedly perplexed about this. She wrote the letter to her credit, and she was very kind to do that. Uh, but she, at lunch, she said, okay, now I would like to know why you would ever want to do that. Uh, why would you, as an urbanist, somebody who studies cities, want to go study theology as well? And so I, I told her it was, it was because I, because religion is a key force in our society. It's the first reason I gave her. Sure. Um, a key force in society, as strong as globalization, as strong as, as urbanization, and I'd like to see how those things come together. I think that would be enriching. But I also told her that I'm a practicing Christian. Um, or rather, first I told her I'm a Christian, and she looked at me and said, she looked at me quizzically and said, a practicing Christian? And I said, yes. And I had to explain what that meant and, uh, and why it was that, to me, doing, loving, loving God with all of my heart mind and strength, um, actually means thinking through all the work that I do, everything that I do, much in the way that the Ordinary Theology series calls us to think through everything that we do, um, think through everything I do as a Christian. Well, how does that play into, I'd love if you could, uh, continuing that theme, tell us the story of uh, kind of a turning point in kind of your story in the book, and I assume in your career, of uh, being in Mexico City and how being confronted with that changed the way you thought about some things? Yeah. Um, that was that was an interesting trip for me. Uh, I had been there for two weeks on my own. I'd never been there before. And though I was traveling with a group from Wheaton, actually, and I was a student, I was a senior undergraduate student, or going to be a senior in the fall, um, I spent two weeks there in Mexico City, exploring the city was my job to learn more about the city and, to, and how to get around so they could help other students when they arrived 
and they're getting around town for field trips and things like that. And that trip really had a sort of built-in experiential uh, component and also a built-in theological and biblical reflection component. It was, uh, because it was a Wheaton College trip, um, we were required to think through the kinds of things that we witnessed uh, in terms of poverty or environmental degradation or the cultural treasures uh, of, of Mexico that we, we got to explore. We got to think through those things as Christians. That was my first encounter with a city that captured my imagination, but in, I think, a telling way, it captured my imagination the context of these commitments to think seriously as a Christian about everything I did. It was a little bit more challenging later when I was at the University of Delaware um, and also working in community development, and I was first learning that environmental challenges were very important uh, to urban life and to our cities. I wanted to think through that uh, as a Christian, and while I hadn't, well, I didn't have the resources around me to do it, the framework to do it there at a, at a public uh, graduate school, I had already been prepared to do that uh, by my studies here at Wheaton, and I was glad for that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, as you were describing that story, I was sitting here thinking that, um, we often um, exhort our audience with the the value of getting in over your head, and I can't think of a more getting in over your head situation than being a uh, Wheaton College undergraduate senior tr- blazing a trail in Mexico City. That's uh, right. that it really is where you learn things. I'd love to pick up on something you said there. I think it's very important. I'd love to get our for our listeners both in their faith and just I'm sure for you as an academic. You use the phrase thinking through, and we actually use that a fair amount when we're giving advice to people. I'd love, both as a scholarly person and um, as a person of faith, and maybe from, I think a good example from the book is you talk about using the scriptural story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, but what does it mean for you to look at a problem and think it through? What does that process actually take on? That's that's a, a very good question. It, it's at the heart, really, of what we do as scholars, um, but also I think what we do every day, uh, just as as people living in this world, I think we're thinking through things whether we know it or not, um, and we can we can actually uh, begin to think through them more more critically and in a more let's say aware way. Um, and what that looks like uh, for me is to stand back from the problem and I think adopt a, or from the issue, let's say, or question that I'm addressing, and adopt um, an approach that I've learned from uh, philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, who says that we really ought to have two things. That is, we ought to have a Christian social ethic, and we ought to combine that with a capacity for critical analysis of a present social order. And what he means by that is, is on the one hand, we need to understand the oughts of things. We need to understand why we should do something or how things should be. And on the other hand, we have to understand the mechanisms of how they get that way. Or that is how things change, how they got the way they are now and how they might be different. Um, or you could take a, a more secular approach to this. A political theorist named Bent Fludberg asks us uh, four questions. I like this framework. 
um, where are we going, who wins and who loses, is this desirable and what should be done. And that requires us to stand back and, and ask those questions through that framework to bring that lens to the situation and come up with some answers. There are lots of other approaches, but those are two of them. They're both value-laden, though. They both ask us to bring in uh, questions of, of value, to ask questions like, is this desirable? To ask questions like, what should be done, what ought to be done, to bring what Walter Sorf calls a Christian social ethic. And for us, uh, we find the resources for that conversation about the ought, about what should happen. We find those resources in Scripture and the Christian tradition. And so in, in the book, you, you asked about the, the use of Daniel in the book there, um, the chapter on caring for the vulnerable. You know, you look at the story of Daniel, we often read the, say, chapters 2 through 4, which is often called the Nebuchadnezzar cycle. Uh, we often read those chapters as if they're discrete stories. Um, but in fact, I think if you look at chapters 2 through 4 there, you see uh, one story unfolding, and it's a story that teaches us what God thinks it means about how to be human, or what God says it means about how to be human. And I think, uh, in the end, Nebuchadnezzar throughout is grasping at things that don't belong to him. He wants a kingdom that's timeless, and therefore, after he learns that a statue in his dream has many different materials, and there's a timeline, he creates one statue, all of gold, that represents his kingdom, head to toe, and says, no, this. This is my kingdom, and it goes forever. Now worship it. Or in the next dream that he has, he dreams about a tree that shelters and feeds all of creation, thinking that perhaps his kingdom is over, over all of creation, is not geographically bounded. This is Nebuchadnezzar's way of trying to be like God or trying to be uh, his version of, of what it means to be human in the best way. And when the punishment comes, or is declared, rather, for Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel tells him that he has one way one opportunity to to stay or delay that judgment. And he says, your, your opportunity to delay this judgment is to care for the poor and the vulnerable, to stop doing injustice to them. And I think, actually, this is Daniel responding to Nebuchadnezzar, saying, if you want to be like God, this is how to do it, to care for the poor and the vulnerable. If you want to be truly human, to be the, the image of God you were meant to be, you care for the poor and the vulnerable, not you imagine you have a kingdom that's forever or a kingdom that's over all things. Not that kind of ambition, but ambition to serve is what we need. And I, had, I think that can then inform how we approach care for the poor and the vulnerable in our cities. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely fantastic. That's I really am glad that our audience got a chance to kind of get that example of you thinking through a problem. I think that's great. I really love the way um, your academic uh, training, your critical thinking training plays into your reading of Scripture in the same way that your reading of Scripture plays into your critical thinking and problem solving. I think it's a good example, and it's a very important thing that those two things are not contradictory. They actually are part of our the way we look at the world. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'd love to get you um, to uh, take us out with um, one of the one of the ways we know Dr. Tully um, is he brings uh, groups both from his own church, but also from uh, he's in charge of the Wheaton in Chicago program. And so we, he brings uh, some of those folks and some urban encounter. I guess that's what they call it. The freshman orientation thing. That's the uh, urban track of our Wheaton Passage program. Yeah, yeah, the urban passage to uh, to the bridge. So it's actually um, kids who are incoming Wheaton students who come experience the bridge. And I'm sure for a lot of them, it is their first example of, to use a great phrase you use in the book, uh, the gulf between the ideals and the realities of urban life. Uh, so you can, mm-hmm. can uh, tell us a little bit about just we try to describe the bridge to our folks and it's, it's a bit to describe and we're so inside it. What's, what's that experience like for you and through the eyes of these young people seeing it for the first time? That's a, that's a very good question. I've, I've brought, as you said, uh, a number of, of groups to the bridge. Um, I've been along with our church uh, to the bridge. In fact, our church was involved in bridge before I was, and I learned it from them. And I've, uh, taking care of uh, coordinating a few of those trips since a few people have had to move from our church. And that's been a great uh, honor and pleasure and privilege to serve with you guys that way. And then also with our Wheaton and Chicago students, who are typically juniors and seniors at Wheaton. And finally, with our uh, freshman students, as you pointed out, uh, many of whom choose to start their Wheaton experience with a week in the city and spend three of those days and one night with you serving. Um, and what that what that's like is an opportunity for them to see, I think, the, uh, the not yet breaking into the already. Mm. I, I think they see the bridge service, and, and this is a great experience of God's presence, God's work in the world, and the experience that they participate in it, they're invited into that. They understand the privilege that that is. And yet they see the, the brokenness, too. Um, and so, and I should say, it's the, it's the already breaking into the not yet. Sorry. Uh, it's it's the, uh, all the things that we experience now that are so difficult, that are so broken, um, being right, at least momentarily, by the presence of God's work in, in God's kingdom. And I think one thing that the bridge does so effectively is it helps churches to be what they should be after that service. It helps them have experiences, whether it's one-time ministry or sustained engagement with the bridge. Churches are learning how to be the people God has called them to be, how to be the community God called them to be how it is that they can welcome others who are different from them to the same table, to the same congregation, to the same pew. And I think we don't do that very well. And Bridge uh, sort of slips that in the back door for us sometimes. Churches and student groups often think they're the ones who are transforming somebody else's life, at least momentarily, and there's some truth to that. But on the other hand, an important transformation that's going on is also in the groups that are serving, where they learn to serve and they learn to be with others who are different from them in the presence of God. Absolutely. And Dr. Tully has a, an excellent kind of more involved description of being at the bridge and that in the book that takes what he just said and puts it in the context of the uh, 
the New Testament idea of putting off the old man and putting on the new and how churches do that as well, or attendees. And uh, it's one of the most uh, descriptive and insightful descriptions of the bridge any of us have ever heard. So the books, if you're a fan of this podcast, the book's definitely worth picking up just for that. And uh, it, it's, there's a lot of great stuff. Again, the book is Cities of Tomorrow and the City to Come, A Theology of Urban Life by Noah J. Tolley. And uh, Dr. Tolley, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for having me with you. I really appreciate it. All right, we really appreciate Dr. Tully sitting down and talking with us. If you want to find the book, you can find it on Amazon. The that was Sydney's- an awesome interview. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I loved it. What was it. your favorite part? Well, I uh, technically didn't hear it because you haven't edited it yet, and it wasn't going in the studio while we were waiting. Say something specific. So, uh, would, you words- like me in the, would you like me in the future to edit all these ahead of time so we can Thanks. sit here and listen to them together? I think silently. That, I think that would be ideal. Okay. Well, in the meantime, the book is, but, but Jed, thank you for helping me cover that. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. Very smooth. The You're title welcome. of the book. We're trying to plug from the man who was nice <laughs> enough to come sit down with us. It's the cities of tomorrow and the city to come, a theology of urban life. Noah J. Tully, you can find him online, Noah, N-O-A-H, Tully, T-O-L-Y. You can find NoahTully.com. You can find him under that name on Twitter and Tumblr. So cities, we learned it. Cities of tomorrow. And the city to come. In the future. Stop it. <laughs> sure, sure. Right? Yeah, it's actually not the title, but. Oh, well, nope, that's, that's uh, not the title at all. Maybe they should ask somebody you know, Glenn, like a genius. When I pitch people know. to come on the podcast, <laughs> I've mentioned very specifically, we will mention the correct title of your project. Right. So people can find it. That's pretty much the only requirement. Although, mm. dude, I love the idea of having people with media projects as guests and then giving them new titles for their work. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Just pitching. Yeah. Somebody's tried it. So we did have a question based on sitting down and talking to Dr. Tully because we, we like him a lot as a dude but we also happen to know that he is an expert in an actual field that he wrote a book about, which is rarer than you would think in the Christian bookstore. But we did have, it reminded me, we did have a question come into the, they'll say that inbox, which I just kind of answered the email um, directly, but it, I thought it'd be, this would be a good opportunity for us to talk about the show. Basically our friend uh, Matthew from Carolina down there wrote in and said, how do I know if a Christian book's good or not? You know, okay. there's a right. ton of them and I, I don't, can't know every author. So Based on what we just heard with Dr. Tully, I thought we could maybe kick around real quick and just kind of, when you guys are looking at books, what's a one thing? It's a, right. We won't go fully deep into it because we had the interview in the episode, but just kind of it's a litmus test if it either makes it or it doesn't. Glenn, yeah, which kicks off? I think, generally speaking, I'm, I'm looking for books written by people who have done stuff. As you said, you know, here, here's some accomplishments. Uh, you know, being a pastor of a megachurch is not an accomplishment in my mind, and that's unfortunately a lot of the books that are out there. Um, in in the case of uh, Professor Tully's book, he's been out there. He's been in the field. He's been on the ground. He's talked to people like us to get information to make sure that book is relevant and on point. Um, uh, I I don't really super enjoy books that involve uh, a lot of I sat in a coffee mm-hmm. uh, uh, house and I, I had so hard. I had some deep thoughts and some. <coughs> Really amazing feels, and I typed out my feels. Yeah, that's how the kids talk. You know. Yeah, yeah. You're, hip to, you're hip to the lingo. If you want me to read your book, you got to say something that sets me free from something right. that's holding me back in my walk. <laughs> early in this book, mm-hmm. like get right to that. Say something. I, I have a, a zillion and one uh, uh, problems and 
uh, and hangups and and things holding me back and keeping me from living a, a, a truly victorious and free life. If you say something that lightens the load on that or gets that obstacle out of the way, helps me move forward, I'll read that book. I'll read every sure. other book you ever uh, put out there. If you're not doing that, if it's just here are my cool observations, I, I to be honest with you, I'm not even picking it up. So that's that, for me, that's a big litmus test. Absolutely. What about you, Jed? I'd pick right up there. Um, I'm looking for a book that gives me a greater sense of context and a greater depth of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. in other words, I don't want something that manipulates my emotions. I want something that's actually breaking things down for me, help me to see things in a new light, yeah. right? So one of my favorites is a guy named Henry Cloud. Uh, he's a counseling psychologist. He's an amazing guy, Christian brother. Uh, I've read basically everything he's written. Really, really good dude. Um, and he writes a lot about behavioral change because, of course, that's that's his field. That's what he does. It relates a lot, actually, to what we do, helping mm-hmm. people you know, make behavioral changes. And he's able to break down, this is why people do this. This is why they struggle doing this other thing. This is what's behind that. Right. Here's the context. There's a depth to it where i i don't just you know know a few factoids i know why these things work this way i know i know what's driving it i may have positive emotions off of understanding those things but the goal is understanding not emotions right that's absolutely great what about you lee well i want to pick up where glenn started off which is the the question i have is is this author like actually known for doing anything that they're writing about so like when you pick up a book um by cory ten boom um, she was, you know, detained in a prisoner of war camp during, you know, d- during the Nazi regime. Regime, you know, Paul Brand was a, a surgeon who's writing about, uh, you know, the the things that he's learned um, from from serving in leprosiums all over the world. Uh, Chuck Colson, you know, decades of prison ministry. George Mueller in in uh, you know uh, taking care of orphans for his entire life. John Newton from being, you know, just every, everything he wrote from pastoral care from being a pastor in a small town with the same people for decades you know so people that are writing about things that they've actually done i don't i don't i don't need a book about you know discipleship from a dude like glenn said that is in a church that has 10,000 people in it and that that and they're not doing discipleship and you know so i i want to i want to hear from somebody who's done something and it doesn't even at, at, to that point it doesn't even have to be um a, a christian book at that point i want to know somebody mm-hmm. that's done something what can you tell me about and and uh and and you know what you're talking about so i want to read from experts who actually have done the thing that they're talking about Amen. It's all great stuff. All right, we're moving on our last question here. It came in anonymously to our Tumblr, and it says, In light of James 4, 13 to 15, Matthew 6, 25 to 34, and Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, what should our attitude be about planning ahead? On one hand, someone could say that planning ahead means that you're not trusting God to provide for you so you don't have faith and that you don't even know if you'll what you'll have tomorrow. You are trying to take your life into your own hands. On the other hand, you may say to plan for the future because it's wise and good stewardship of God's resources for you. So Jed, why don't you start us off here? Sure thing. It's a great question. I love it. And I think whenever we have something in the Bible that feels like either it's a contradiction or it's headed in that direction, it's a great opportunity for us to dig deeper and try and see what's really going on here, what's what's really being talked about. If you can dig it, I think that the James passage and the Matthew passage are talking about something very, very different from the Proverbs passage. The James passage and the Matthew passage are actually talking about attitude. Um, you know, Matthew directly is that famous passage talking about do not worry. 
You know, do not worry about what you will eat. Do not worry about what you will wear. And the thing about worry is you are trying through your mental and emotional state to uh, exert control over things you don't have any control over. Right. Uh, in, in fact, um, this is not original to me, but a functional definition of anxiety is the feeling you feel when you're trying to control things you can't control. Right, that's right, that's right. what anxiety is. So Jesus is in essence saying, don't try to control things you can't control. And if you can dig it, actually, the book of James, it's a passage where he says, you you know, um, you arrogant people say, you know, tomorrow we're going to go to this city and we're going to make a bunch of money. And it's going to be great. He says, what you should actually say is if God wills it, we should, you know, go to the city. Well, again, he's talking about you are trying to a, you're being arrogant, and B, you're pretending you have control over things you don't have any control over. Right. Um, you know, you're trying to claim that your life is yours to command. Um, mm. And even in a secular sense, that's just not true. Um, you know, mm. uh, pe- people get hit by a bus. You know, I mean, bad things happen. You know, I decide I'm going to go do this. It's going to be awesome. And then it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so his point, uh, James's point is humility. You know, it'd be really good for you to say, yep. I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. I have plans I want to work on, but I need God to make them go. All right, so again, the James passage, the Matthew passage, are really talking about the same thing. The Proverbs passage is actually talking about something very different. It's talking about things you can control. It's an exhortation to, it's basically a thing, talking about like consider the ant and be wise. Mm-hmm, you, know, yeah. um, you know, the ant you know, stores up for winter, it gathers food and whatnot. Here's the thing, the ant can control that. Right. The, the, the ant actually can work it can get some elbow grease going it, it has stuff it's meant to do um work it's meant to do we're not meant to worry we're not meant to pretend we're in control of our future but god does have work for us to do today right. and we we are meant to do that it's a false choice to say you can either try and control everything or not care about anything and i, th- I think that's part of what you're pointing to with your question is do i say that I worry about nothing and then make no effort at anything in my life, or do I be a type A control freak that's in charge of everything? That's a false choice. What what God's calling you to is to leave control in his hands, but at the same time, work hard at the things he does give you to do. It says elsewhere in the Bible, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might as unto the Lord. Well, if God gives you a job, for example, if God provides a place of employment for you, you are meant to work hard at that. That's not really about guaranteeing you'll never get fired because life doesn't work that way. It's not about guaranteeing you'll be promoted because life doesn't work that way either. But it is about saying God has given me work to do, so I want to work faithfully in it. The key thing, the unifying principle on all of this is humility. Saying mm-hmm. there's stuff I'm meant to focus on and I'm meant to attend to. There's stuff that's above my pay grade that I'm not meant to worry about. I'm going to leave that with God. That's the perspective of a humble uh, man or a humble woman. And that's actually what ties, I think, all three of these verses together. I think you're absolutely right. I think the other thing that um, we're looking for here, the main, the, kind of the main word is balance. You want to talk us through that, Lee? Yeah, I, I I think it would be interesting to to look at this thing out of the, you know, from a from a different example. Like, what if you looked at this the same type of question from the example of like evangelistic ministry? So you want to reach out to people who are lost and you want them to become saved. Well, in that type of situation, you know, it we're really comfortable with saying, well, I'm not in control of whether or not somebody gets saved if I preach the gospel to them. I don't. I can't control that outcome. But at the same time, you wouldn't find somebody who would say, and so as a result, I'm just going to sit here on this park bench being holy and wait for a lost person to come by and say, could you open the scriptures to me and tell me 
how I might be saved. <laughs> sure. You know, that that's not the way that works. The way that evangelistic ministry works is we know that we can't control whether or not somebody gets saved, and yet we're praying about it, and we're making plans, and we're making strategies, and, we're, and if something doesn't work, we change tack, and we try, what if we tried over here? What if we tried it at a different time of day? And what do you think about this? You know, and just keeping this idea balanced of exactly what Jed's talking about, of I, I don't think that I am in control of, my, of the outcomes, and at the same time, I'm using the gifts that God has given me, I'm using the time that God has given me, I'm using the resources that God has given me. To, to try to figure out how I can be a player. One of the things that I really respect about um, the company Google, which I, I, I say that where I'm going with this is there's a, uh, the, I think there's a cool element in this whole question, this whole, this whole kind of tension of balance, just that uh, looking at God as like a really cool boss. Because like one thing that Google does is I, I've read that they have this thing called 20% time, which is like, you work hard, you're 80% of the time that you're thinking, you know, whatever, doing whatever you're hired to do, your deliverables, your job, whatever. And then 20% of your time, you get to just dream, come up with your own, just take that, we're going to pay you for that time, just do your own thing. Come up, if you invent something new, awesome. And that's where a lot of the things that we know Google for have come from. Just brilliant people messing around, chasing down a dream, a thought, an idea, working, collaborating over here, coming up with a cool deal. And then now they've got, you know, Google Maps and Google Earth and Google Voice and Translate and all these other kind of things. These weren't originally part of the plan. And I like the idea of God giving Glenn a set of gifts, Jed a different set of gifts, Matt a different set of gifts, and then they all get in there together and they're not controlling the outcomes, but they're, they're coming up with as a team and God is just watching them come up with all kinds of cool, creative, different strategies and working hard and doing all this. It's kind of like, this is a really, really cool boss. Work hard, make plans, do strategies, fix, you know, tinker with it, get it right and everything. And yet, no that God is the one who's controlling the way the whole thing comes out, but he loves to get us in the mix of this thing and playing in there. Amen. That's absolutely right, Glenn. I love all this that's being said, and you know, I think if I could kind of circle back to the question and try and get a feel for, uh, you know, sort of the, the heart of what this person is asking about, I think there is a, a question of, you know, is the Lord trying to give us a hard word about planning here? And I think if if there was a hard word, it would it would sound something like this, and that would be the idea that it does not make sense for you to plan for the future unless you have an idea of what that future is going to be. Okay. So, if you have, um, for example, in the in the story of Joseph. You know, the Lord tells Joseph there's going to be a famine, store up grain, and then you have extra grain. Okay, so that, that makes sense. Uh, storing up grain, uh, just in case there's a famine, is a different kind of thing. That may be of use, it may not. Who knows? We don't. If we don't know the future, then, then that's what that is. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the idea of uh, this may be a useless idea, and this may be a bad idea, but who's to say? Uh, it actually doesn't translate very well. I mean, you know, actually God can say, and if you ask him, he'll tell you, so it's, that's not a, 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 a conflict there. So the idea that 
uh, I, I wanted to to bring us to this idea that uh, that it's worth having a sense of what the Lord wants to do with you in your future, and therefore making plans based on that. If you if if you take that on board as I do need to have a sense of the future, even if it's just in very vague terms, in order to make plans properly, then these three verses work very well. Uh, James four thirteen uh, is really, as as Joe's pointing out, uh, is really saying, "Don't make plans without the Lord." Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. don't don't go on don't don't go by what whatever you think. It, you know, uh, go make those plans with the Lord. Uh, Matthew six uh, twenty five is saying. Don't worry if you'll have enough, because the point is, I'm giving you what you need for your future. You do with that what you're supposed to do. So uh, why would God deprive you of what you need if if he's telling you what to do with, with the stuff? Just as a point of logic, uh, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, worry doesn't make sense there. Uh, and I love what Proverbs 6 uh, uh, is saying there about, uh, Proverbs 6, verse 6, uh, is really about working together so that there will be resources for everyone. Because that's, that's what he's saying about the ant. Is, uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful picture uh, uh, that, that he's painting. He's saying that ants don't have a, a hierarchical organization. You know, we, you, the, you, there's like the queen, and we think the queen's in charge, and she hands out orders. But Entomologically speaking, well played. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I paused for the. I paused for, paused the, for the, the, for the response for that. Um, entomologically speaking, uh, that's actually not true. Uh, ants don't have any uh, top-down organization, and they they create a very elaborate living structure. Uh, scientists uh, uh, today study that because. It's this very odd thing where order emerges from chaos when usually yeah. it goes the other way. But he's saying, consider that. Consider how all that organization and working together can happen when everybody's on that same page, when everybody wants to accomplish that same goal. So I think he's he's really talking about having this vision for the future, and the, if everybody's on that and we're all building towards that same thing, that all of these things will the the resources will come together. It won't Absolutely. be just what mm-hmm. I have or what I store away, wow, but it's that idea yeah. that we're all you know coming together on this thing. I think that's spot on. I think that's awesome. And one of the things I love that you know is going on here is we're we're digging deep and we're trying to to get beyond the surface level of what these verses are saying. Mm-hmm. I think this actually relates back to our first question with the Lord's Prayer. You know, yeah. we're always going to be. Uh, with the Bible, we're always going to be rewarded when we dig deeper and ask, you know, what's really going on. If you read farther in that same passage in Proverbs, it's a whole warning against laziness. Is right, is, right, the, right, is right. the whole thing? That's right. that's the broader context of what it's talking about. And I think the funny thing is. I think laziness is rampant in most people's lives, but not in the areas that they think. I have known so many people who were straight A students, convinced they're lazy. I mean, absolutely, possibly convinced I'm just the laziest piece of junk you've ever met in your entire Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. Uh, because they're not a double plus straight A student. But but I think I think the funny thing is 
I think a lot of us have areas in our lives where we are lazy and we're just not clear on it. You know, I mean, I can be super lazy about rest, which is right, a really right. weird thing, right, but it, yeah. it, it's actually, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of discipline and work. We're talking yeah, about this earlier. Absolutely right. To, to, you know, get effective rest. You know, Jesus is talking in the Matthew passage about worry. And if you dig deeper, you might say, I'm probably not worried about my clothes or having enough food to eat today. That's, you know, if you, if you live in, you know, a first world country, that's really not going to be an issue for you. But it's worth, it's worth asking Jesus if he's talking about it this strongly we all struggle with it on some level so what am I worrying about where right. where is my anxiety you know if there's this much of the Bible that's devoted to talking about laziness as in the case of Proverbs where is my laziness it, it mm. probably doesn't have anything to do with my grades if I'm getting straight A's and everything right, but, you right. know but where where is that hiding out but again we have to get past that surface level reaction mm. we have to get past that you know yeah. the, you know this appears to be what it say if we dig deeper though we'll be rewarded because if we see that we do have these struggles just in areas we wouldn't think then we can address them and we can right. get some freedom and some relief and some healing on yeah. them. It's absolutely right. But one of the things um, to balance out with that is one of the other things that goes on was particularly with these passages, particularly famously with the Matthew passage, is you also can't jump to, I, I know what you're saying. Because uh, nowhere in the Matthew passage it says, you know, consider the birds of the air who do need the sun or reap. It says, consider the lilies of the field. At no point does it say be like them. Sure. Right. It does not say consider the birds there who neither sow nor reap be like that sure or consider the lilies of the field who don't spin be like that he's very clearly pointing those out in the, his larger point of do not worry yeah it says that very clearly it turns out a lot of people kind of like worrying yeah so mm. they kind of find in digging deeper they attempt to find a way for it to flip it sure and mm. it's really not saying that when you go back to the original the koine it's mm. really all about the thing of the, this that and the other so digging deeper is a very important thing. It's a great thing, but it's um, sometimes in the Bible when things are straight up said, you got to let them go. And there's a sometimes when things are straight up said. Also, as we started with Jed, started this out with if there's a seeming conflict contradiction, the t- two things that straight up says you need to look at: do these actually conflict? Absolutely. If we just take them at face value without digging into them, so does do not worry about tomorrow. And don't be lazy. Are those conflicting statements in any way, shape, or form? Sure. No, they get conflicting when you put your own next level stuff and uh, cultural emotions about sure. both of those things. With you know, wouldn't you rather work way too hard than risk being lazy, or wouldn't you rather you know give it all up and move and being a burnout? When you put all that stuff on there, that's where we get to contradicting. Sure. There are things in the Bible that even at face value seemingly contradict. We want to dig through those, but a lot of times they're just clear statements that work together very well once you let them be what they are. Sure. All right. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com or the bridge, Chicago.tumblr.com. We want to thank Dr. Noah Tully for joining us again. You can find him at noahtully.com or on Twitter and Tumblr. We're going to take out the song this week. We've talked a lot about, we started out with prayer, ending with this idea of, you know, taking your worries and your feelings about future lords. This is a song Jed wrote called I Come to You. This is a recording of that live at the bridge. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Let's say that podcast. We'd fight through fire with sticks and feelings for our fans, but please marry that. That's good. I was poetic. Yeah. Here I am, here I am, Jesus. I'm not who I once seems to be. Here I am, here I am, Jesus. Making something of me And I come to you Cause I need
discouraged so fast Here I am, here I am, Jesus Afraid all I am is my past And I come to you Cause I need your strength to To be.